Welcome to the Sanctum. Here we study the mysteries of Dungeon Crawl Classics and Appendix N. With your keepers of mysteries, Jen Brinkman, Mark Bruner, Bob Brinkman. Enter the Sanctum Socorro and be inspired. Welcome to the Sanctum Socorum podcast, where we plumb the depths of Appendix N as it pertains to the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game, and we're here to help you serve these literary offerings at your DCC RPG table. I'm Jen, with me tonight are my fellow Keepers of Mysteries, Mark Bruner. Hello, everyone. And Bob Brinkman. Good evening. And tonight we are covering The Fallible Fiend by L. Sprague de Camp. Okay, sin up, guy. <laughs> he looked like a cross between a dragon and a catfish, and he could bend iron bars into pretzels with a flick of his hand. But what Zadim the mild-mannered demon really was, was a scholar of logic and philosophy. That's why, when Zadim was drafted for a year's servitude on the mortal plane, he felt that a monumental administrative error had been made, and even though Zadim resolved to be absolutely obedient and do exactly what he was told, the wizard who employed him, Dr. Maldivius, soon agreed. Hmm. I thought this was kind of fun. A little lighthearted, maybe? I loved it. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> Much more than our last selection. <laughs> oh my god, yes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. We did not get hate mail. We got scolded on Google+, Plus, <laughs> but we did not get hate mail. It led to some interesting finds for you. Yes. That it did. This is enjoyable. It, it, Like you said, Jen, it was very lighthearted. It very, reminds me very much of Terry Pratchett or Piers Anthony or Douglas Adams. Lawrence Watt Evans, you know, was another one that came to mind. Mm-hmm. You know, this kind of idea of an administrative error somewhere in the universe. This uh, Zadim is not supposed to be there, but, you know, he is. And then he has to cope with it. He does so in a humorous way for the most part. You know, fish out of water, literally. <laughs> I think we could throw Robert Asprin's myth series into that as well. Yeah. Oh, definitely. The satirical overtones are in both. And it kind of was a, a an interesting, you know, reading this because it was such an early version of that satire for this genre. You know, clearly it, it has, I think, deeper roots from other genres. You know, satire is, is obviously a kind of widely used format, but this creature from another world is looking at humanity and we are you know satirizing humanity through his eyes and his actions it's kind of an early example in in terms of fantasy novelization which i thought i thought was really cool to go back and see kind of the origins of that i thought there was a lot of interesting comparison to some of the older pieces and as satire it really shows off to camp's love of linguistics and philosophy so that kind of went back and forth even through some of the more shall we say, problematic facets of older fantasy. 
<laughs> well, let's let's talk about that a little bit because that was something that struck me a little bit more in this uh, work than maybe some others I've read, and I'm not sure why that was, other than it was kind of clearer in this version, uh, you know, in terms of some of the racial problematic depictions or some of the sexist, you know, problematic depictions, maybe because of the contrast with the humor. I, I think that's where I, I saw it like, oh, did he really have to describe it in this way? Because everything else was going so well, you know, in terms of... <laughs> <laughs> oh, everything was going so well. Why did we have to go there? That really could be part of it. Besides all of the foibles of, you know, prime plane dwellers being pointed out, there were so many uses of the idioms of, well, as we say on the 12th plane, and then it's followed by some corny translation of a common idiom in English. It really kept jarring and distracting me from the main character. But then they start describing people in such fashions, like you said, Mark, maybe a little bit sexist. You know, the wealthy widow who's a silly female trying to dabble in wizardry could never be someone as high up as a syndic herself because she is but a woman. And, uh, really? Yeah. <laughs> To be fair, it wasn't Zadim saying this. It was his observations of the people of the city of Ir talking about her this way. Well, and it wasn't Zadim saying it. It was DeCamp saying it. Right. There was a lot of broad stereotype. I think that may have also been in the same category as pointing out the foibles of humans. The Pealuan, who were very obviously based on Australian Aborigines, even road kangaroos. <laughs> he, he really kind of harped on the physical structure of their faces and brows. And of course, they were the cannibals. And to be fair, the Aboriginal societies, uh, some of them did carry out cannibalistic rites, but they were very different. And it certainly wasn't farming. <laughs> or uh, what was it? The uh, hunting, who were yeah. very obviously the Mongols, but they were led by a very fat and lazy Genghis Khan. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I mean, there were very, very broad stereotypes, and it, it wasn't it wasn't just stereotypes of other ethnicities. You know, like you said, even the merchants, everybody was a very broad stereotype, and sure, that might be because of the way Zadim was encountering and, and seeing them in comparison. But I think one of the reasons why it worked so well as satire and one of the reasons why it's also a little problematic is because the stereotypes are so prevalent and none of them are nice. Yeah, it is really that filtering or lensing humanity through this outside character. And you don't get a lot of positives you know it's <laughs> it's i mean it, it it certainly is the 12th plane which is where it's deem hails from even though they would probably characterize as the prime plane themselves you know there are right. <laughs> yeah it's, it's a much more orderly society it's a society where customs are observed and there there's not this wildness or the unusual aspects of you have an elected leader that you get by lottery and then you just abandon all of your you know social uh, norms and everything goes downhill within six months you know, before <laughs> pulling shells from a bag to determine those leaders or state officers they thought that was uh, done by the gods the gods were the ones that made that ultimate decision for them and that kind of played into the various creation myths 
between the prime plane peoples, like according to the Zephyraj, different gods created the men of each region, as opposed to there being just one god creating everybody on that particular world or plane. So it was kind of an interesting cross-sectioning, I thought, of the different cultures as seen by people in DeCamp's time. Well, and I really liked the, we have a king for five years, and we cut off his head and throw it into the crowd, and the person that catches it is the new king. <laughs> but yeah, there was a lot of little neat details, and DeCamp was a slouch. He was a Gandalf Grandmaster of Fantasy, uh, Science Fiction Writers of America Grandmaster. He won the World Fantasy Award for Life Achievement. He was a founding member of Swordsman and Sorcerers Guild of America. I mean, he really knows his stuff, and it does show the way that he likes to play with philosophy and language, like I said, especially when they combine into a demon that has to strictly obey orders. Mm -hmm. And watching him kind of play back and forth, well, he said this, I was going to ask him if he meant that I didn't have to eat his apprentice, but he cut me off. I don't think he wants me to eat his apprentice. Eating people's bad. I'm not supposed to eat people, but he's ordered me to eat people, and he didn't exempt his apprentice. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, yeah, I love that it's more than just the story of a literal demon's you know word or, or you know the words that are that are you know, literally applied by the demon. I love that there's this background philosophy that he has, and he's an intelligent creature, but he doesn't understand this culture, the you know the people that are here. He's trying to approach it from his society and his training. But the fact that he ultimately follows those little orders, how he gets there, that journey that he gets there is is what really, I think, makes it somewhat special, somewhat more than, oh, well, yeah, you have to word things carefully when you're around demons. Everybody knows that. But this is a little bit more of that, you know, backstory in terms of his internal thinking. It also is that kind of catches them multiple ways. It's, okay, well, the eating the apprentice didn't work. Let's all turn vegetarian. And... <laughs> Uh, well, I'm supposed way, to eat people, but I can't. And and, and there's this person here stealing the sapphire. I've got to think about this for a second. Oh, he's gone. <laughs> Whoopsie. I really liked that as opposed to the standard rule. Of course, a demon's going to screw you over by interpreting things just because he's evil. In this case, he's not evil at all. He's just an indentured servant who's doing his best to follow the commands he's given. Yeah, it, uh, this character is what really makes the book work in, in terms of your journey through the satire that he's seeing. I do like, even after he screws up and eats the apprentice, actions have consequences here. So it's not just something that, oh, well, we'll keep you anyway. No, he gets passed on. He gets to Bargardo the Great, which is the Carnos. Yeah. Man. He's essentially bought. He had to pay the wizard for the remainder of that year. Yeah, his contract keeps getting passed along. So he's just sort of this hapless figure bouncing from one person to another. Yeah, and then something goes wrong with the carnival, as it does. And he finds himself purchased again by an agent of the wealthy Roska, the widow. I have to put a little side note in here. I just enjoyed that way too much because I unknowingly named one of my favorite first dead characters uh, after this widow. She's nowhere near as pretty, though, <laughs> being a half-orc. <laughs> anyway, um, even the little things like Zadim forgetting part of the spell to get home and just say, screw this contract. He 
forgotten a couple of lines of it and couldn't do it. And that's a loss failure. I I thought that was <laughs> right in line with DCC. Definitely. Just the whole concept wrapped up is greatly fun. It's very enjoyable. And the story has a surprisingly large scope going from guard this room in a wizard's lair to help fend off a warring tribe that is trying to eat a city. There's a lot of meat to this. It gets a chance for, you know, DeCamp to really showcase even if he doesn't really dive into it, like you said, he's, he's got points to make about each of these little societies that Zadim comes across. And it takes him on this journey that he can go to sort of the Sherwood Forest, the robbing of the rich to save the poor. But there's a satire aspect to that you know, when he meets Athor of the woods. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's not quite, you know, the, the, the merry men that are part of Robin Hood's group. It's much more of a disciplinarian uh, uh we will follow no government, but you were going to take over a town and form a government. That's different. <laughs> yeah, that's it's different, different for the government. <laughs> <laughs> Just the way humanity is portrayed in all of its various forms. Yeah, it doesn't shine a pleasant light on anyone, but uh, well, it does that, hit everybody. Yeah, and that's and, and it's interestingly, you know, obviously from Zadim's viewpoint, it's stated kind of clearly that we are the 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 more human you know, people in the sense of we're, we're not the fiends, but they, they refer to us as fiends, but they're the devious ones. They're the, the ones that come up with technology and, you know, the, the sort of these, the, you know, these, these approaches to government and society that are complex and, you know, uh, and, and meant to um, sort of undermines, you know, the freedom of the, uh, of the individuals that are uh, under that government or, you know, these, the, the different, uh, societies that are created they're the real devils and we have souls and the demons don't know if they do and we right. have an afterlife which is essentially our modern world right <laughs> Jeez. so you die in that world and you come to ours we are the afterlife <laughs> but you know as far as exploring all of those different cultures and the different peoples i think having a total outsider who looks nothing like one of the humans is probably the only one who could get that true of a view of each of the sections. True, because everybody treats them like crap. Well, yes, besides that little bit of downtroddenness. If it was a case of a human being transported back, say, like in the last book, he would have been treated very differently because he would have been taken for one of the existing peoples there, as opposed to just a complete outsider. So they didn't really feel they had to shelter him from anything or give him any privileges. And so we were exposed to the biases of every single group as it went along. It's equality, right? <laughs> yes, because <laughs> everybody hated Zadim equally. So thinking about that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, moving, moving on to uh, things to stat, I think right off the bat, creating a demon class could be a lot of fun. Uh, using the demon construction tables in the DCC RPG core book. Oh, to make them a player character. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Also, while like uh, the tribe of Og does have a cave dweller class, I think that doing a subhuman subset of classes for like tribal shaman and hunter could be a lot of fun. That would that would expand the subhumans from the core book from just hooting, hollering, and hitting things with clubs to giving them a little <laughs> bit more. 
Especially since, I mean, in this book, it really showed quite nicely how you could have a caveman-style society right on the outskirts of everybody else. And and that, I thought, went really nicely. Interesting. Um, as far as other creatures, giant kangaroos as riding animals, and even the war mammoths. Yeah, you know, As a matter of fact, I went through the DCC book over and over and over because there's this great picture of a war elephant in the monster section, but <laughs> there's no elephant, <laughs> mammoth, or anything of the sort that I could find. So there's this great picture, but there's nothing to go with it. Oh, that, yeah, that you could include that with mounts, and it's got its own sort of class of something like a war horse, but it's a the war mammoth. Yeah. What about you, Jen? Uh, I liked the idea of statting up the sibling Staffire, the mm-hmm. stone that he was sent to guard in the first place. Um, mm-hmm. You could easily set up as either a player character or an NPC. Orog, the uh, Zeparaj shaman who ends up being Dr. Maldivius' new apprentice. He was fun. I, oh, yeah, just, I really liked that because he knew one spell. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he, and he was good job. at it. And he, was, and he was ready to learn more. He just needed to to go out into the world and do it. Very DCC, you know, in terms of it's, uh, you have to quest for it. Yeah, he was like stuck at first level forever and ever. <laughs> I kind of want to stat up a bunch of middle management NPCs and name them all Grax and Gavindos. You know, the, the rude, inept people that skip <laughs> off their duties. And if I recall, Gavindos was... Uh, just an idiot um, <laughs> mechanics for the actual use of summoning circles from a demon's point of view <laughs> you had to enter this pentacle or pentagram depending on your your flavor uh decamp used pentacle which i found very interesting and you have to wait until the one who contracts you actually utters the incantation while the candles in place kind of hold you there and I really, really liked the description of Zadim trying to mount a horse, trying to get the horse to let him come near. So maybe throwing in some sort of mechanic, even if it's just into your house rules, for non-prime plane creatures trying to use a normal mount. Since they smell so different and they don't, they don't understand the concept, so. Right. Even the giant kangaroos or the war mammoths, I don't think either of them would have taken too kindly to Zadim trying to climb onto their backs. The flip of that is that you could easily then take those for your PCs that travel to other planes and encounter different animals there. These are the rules that you have for how they adapt. It's their experience going to another plane. So it's almost a subclass of plane rules, you know, for your PC players, if you're coming up from that approach. It could easily be a a personality plus luck mechanic of some sort. Mm -hmm. And just something simple. We don't want to overcomplicate stuff. Well, I'm thinking of the mechanics for the summoning circles. I really liked the fact that, you know, the demons, they, they could leave anytime they wanted to. They could turn around and kill <laughs> the person that summoned them if they wanted to. It was a matter of politeness and contractual obligation. There was no actual power involved other than the fact that they had given their word. Wouldn't that be a stunning piece to throw into a game? The clerk's like, ah, turn unholy. And the demon's like, yeah, I'm not going to go. 
<laughs> what? I don't have to go. I mean, we generally agree to go, but I don't have to go. I think I'm just going to eat you instead. That would be hysterical. Well, you know, for the judge's point of view. Uh, yeah, I think I know what to throw at your table next, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I don't have any clerics. Um, what do you have for us, Mark? <laughs> I think you could do a little bit with fleshing out or expanding the existing demon rules for DCC in terms of additional characteristics that demons have based on some of the things that we saw with Zadim. You know, the fact that demons can be very individualized and how do you do that? And here's some templates that you could use. You know, Zadim can remain truly motionless or, you know, demons from the 12th plane can just kind of mention that they are like statues if they want to be, whereas even a, a human trying to stand still still fidgets, you know, kind of imperceptibly. They can change color. They're very cold susceptible. You know, Zadim has to, you know, be near warmth in order to uh, not be slowed down to human speed and eventually possibly be overtaken. I love the idea of a digested torpor that he has to take after consuming a big meal, you know, that he is in kind of shutdown mode and somewhat vulnerable at that time. I love that aspect of his character. See, Jen, I'm not napping. I'm in a digestive torpor. <laughs> but I, I really did like that aspect. Apprentice. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned the decamping spell, you know, the, the idea that they have a way to return back to their plane. You know, he could do it any time. It, it, he's got a contract, but things get really bad. He can always go back and petition the demon administration. But he forgot the spell. You know, he's, he is the, the true fallible fiend, you know, that uh, the namesake. And so I, I, I really love that idea of, you know, kind of playing on those aspects of, you know, there is an out for me. We have this contract. I'm being very polite and I don't want to offend the relationship between our, our two organizations. But, you know, I do have a way out. Uh, oh, I forgot how to actually do that. So I'm stuck here even more. Because I'm only rolling a d10 for it because I don't normally cast spells. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I can't try again for another week. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the uh, you know, the army with its kangaroo cavalry uh could be something to stat they they ride dragons and they also have you know these bloodhound dragons that could sniff as um you know as detectors in, in terms of the you know the sentries that they have i love the idea of like having a, a kind of a, a bloodhound sized dragon that you know can uh, can sniff out uh, uh different prey and even recognize zadim when he's coming through but it, it has a kind of a kinship to him uh a likening um, so I, I think those would be kind of fun to play with and stat out a little bit, too. Those were fun. They were fun to read. I, I was really wondering what was going to happen when Zadim passed one of them. That was fun. It was indeed. Yeah, I think I had a little bit more trouble finding something to stat in this one. And, and perhaps because, you know, so much of it was from the point of view of a character NPC that's you know, already a demon. It Well, and so much of it was cultural. Yes, culture. And maybe you could do something with that. Like you said, Jen, you have a bunch of NPCs or, or even cultural you know, level NPCs that you could get from this in different types of kingdoms and different types of monarchies or ways of producing that. That you just have as a judge, you know, something in the background. So maybe you have a table of those. That would be kind of a, a useful thing to come up with. Roll the D20 for this type of government. It's the lottery government. <laughs> so. so speaking of charts and things for the judges to use in settings... Props and audio stuff. Bob, maybe you should take this one first. Right off the bat, I started thinking about the Sibylline Sapphire, the Scrying Stone. 
and you can get those large blue glass gems in like uh, 60 millimeter and you can use those for scrying stones and you can get those online for like 10 bucks and if you want different colors, you can get them for as little as $2. So you can have the big palm-sized gem that you can hand to a player. This is your scrying stone, or this is what you're trying to protect. Oh, nice. I thought that's a great little prop to bring in specifically for something like this. Musically, the hunting, like I said earlier, definitely reminiscent of the nomadic Mongols. So music by Tenger Cavalry would be fitting. And any chance I have to recommend watching the video for Kuleg Batar by Ethnic Zurigu is one that I will totally take. Um, <laughs> just just watch it. Even if you're not going to use it for anything, just watch it and listen to it. It's great. And they've got a couple other songs as well. The Aboriginal culture, the Paleoan. Obviously, you know, Australia's Aboriginal cultures, there's some great music there would be Southeastern Desert Metal. They're built (laughs) as the most isolated metal band in the world. They're an Aboriginal metal band from Central Australia. Additionally, there's artists like Yothu Yindi, and they sometimes provide music both contemporary, like tribal voice, or traditional, like Gapu, and anything with a didgeridoo which can be used ceremonially as well as recreationally, can impart that otherworldly trance-like feeling to the session. Once you get that going in the background with the click sticks going, it's so different, at least for a Western European ear. Yeah. Music and prop, that's what I had. I tried to think of ways to annoy the players with reskinned aphorisms is my, my suggestion this time. <laughs> I think, <laughs> I think Jen, you mentioned that that was one of the things that took you out of this to have this sort of human voice come out of this unhuman creature or an inhum- inhuman creature. I thought that was kind of a fun play in that you could make a kind of an NPC that's, you know, just from a judge's standpoint, just fun to play because he's always quoting these things that are almost familiar and the, the players have to sort of look back at the judge and say, what are you trying to say? Are you Dan Rathering us? You know, with, with your, <laughs> with, I, with, I endeavor with, to give satisfaction. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but in that, that also was something that we, it reminded me of something we didn't talk about at the, the kind of the overview is that the language that DeCamp uses is really playful. And we got into this a little bit with Jack Vance in, in terms of his use of language. I love the flavoring that he gave to this kind of semi-archaic terminology and words, you know, certes, or, you know, he's talking about natheless or, you know, me-seems, and, you know, he has all these kind of curses like almost sapient argopher, you know, (laughs) things that, that I thought would be kind of a fun thing for judges to have to expand their vocabulary. And I kind of think about this a lot when reading these, these old, older works that kind of call back to the sort of the Gygaxian richness of language. And this is another kind of example of that, but in a very playful way that I think you could take something like that and just include in your repertoire as a judge. Nice. I thought, you know, the things that you could have just to kind of be influencing the flavor, the, the idea that they trade an iron, which is a resource that they don't have very much of in the 12th plane. He's got, what is it, like 100 pounds of iron or, or something like that that he's right. in, he in talks about, for. you know, the, the windowsills with iron and how amazing that was. 
I thought you could do a lot with something like having actual iron ingots or some type of physical metal that you know represents something of worthless value in our culture, but could be very valuable, you know, in the context of what the PCs are experiencing. And so you might get examples of that and just get very cheaply some props that are, you know, this doesn't have to be gold. It, it is gold to whoever you're encountering because it represents something, you know, they, a rare commodity or even something magical, you know, that they hunt. Good point. I thought that if you wanted to, I don't know why I thought this, but I was just kind of envisioning that players playing a otherworldly character, you can kind of get these Halloween props where you have like monster contact lenses. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, it just made me, it made me think of a player trying to play a demon character. Well, you you might say, well, come and do a little something to throw off the other players when you do that maybe maybe this is or the judge comes in in that you know wearing these you know sort of slit eye versions if he's if he's trying to evoke something like that i i I don't usually go for something like that in my games but for some reason i was thinking of that when i was reading about zadim and how how do you make that description you know he's very logical he's very i resonate with his mind right as an intellect how do you get that alien quality? Because, you know, you have to have some physicality behind that in order to make it dissociative, right? So that the players really do see that as another thing, right? So you have the similar kind of reaction to the rest of the people that we're supposed to take from the rest of the people in the book. Versus me, when I when I was reading, it was, I was relating to him quite a bit, right? In terms of his values and his philosophies and things like that. Um, and then we talked about, well, how do you tune up the summoning? Well, have your cleric or your wizard write down their literal orders and see if you can find a way of making it, you know, bite back on them. That's something that, yeah, what loopholes can you as a judge expose and have fun with and have and play with, you know, your your PCs in a a way that... Oh, man, it's like a wish spell. No, no, I, I, I I have to disagree here. There's a very important distinction because it's not looking for loopholes. You know, looking for loopholes is the way that demons and devils and things like that are generally perceived. In this case, it was really a question not of loopholes, but of conflicts. Oh, which order do I follow? Yes. Which order do yes. I follow? Or, hey, you gave me this order and you cut me off and didn't make an exception. It was never him trying to outsmart the people that gave him the orders. It was that the people that were giving him the orders were thoughtless. Right. I agree. Gotcha. That's a great distinction. And it's much more in the spirit of, of fun, you know, to do that than, the, you know, the sort of the agency behind looking for the loophole, which I think is a common trope. I think this is much more of a, well, I was really trying to follow the best that I could interpret them. And well, yeah. well, and just like Dr. Maldivius said, after he ate his apprentice, it's like, oh, I should have known better. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, that was my fault. Okay, well, then yeah. do this to get rid of the body. And just <laughs> And the final thing I think you should do for your players to evoke this is make them go on a vegetarian diet for a few sessions. and, and then Doritos maybe... are vegetarian, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> what about you, Jen? You know, I immediately went to Dyson Logos to see if there were any mazes that he had drawn up. Because ears underground caverns were described as that, especially Dr. Maldivius's sanctum. Oh, yeah. I found one that he did last fall called My Private Jakala. Oh my goodness. I would love to throw players in that without drawing them a map and just have them tell me, okay, where are you going? And give them their options, see if they can map along. If not, um, yeah, there would be so many options in that. I also kind of liked the idea of the pocket sun ring. 
that one of the characters had worn while out on the campaign trail. And I know you could pick up something very similar at one of the Renaissance festivals. And I kind of like that because it really showed the archaic time that this is supposed to be held during. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The summoning pentacle had these time candles around it for while he was waiting for Dr. Maldivius to complete the incantation to call him. And I got to thinking that something like a birthday candle would be great for a timed scenario rather than using like an egg timer or one of the little kitchen timers, the jarring buzzer. When it goes out, your time is up. Yeah. You could even use a cool idea. Yeah. A salt cellar, since if you are caught in battle by the Paolua, you are salted down for future keeping. You become, you become reserves for their food stores. And I, I thought that was beautifully dark. Even if, you know, you've got the cultural slants in there and everything, but just that idea of this is what's going to happen to your characters if you are caught. Especially if you are in that maze, perhaps. For music, I actually went out on a limb for this one. Um, I love to see where we come up with our inspirations for the music and how they differ. To me, the feel of ear and the impending war, uh, The Devil's Grasp by Peter Gundry. Really nice, something to have in the background that still has a sense of urgency to it. And then you've got the weeks-long travel with that continued sense of being pressured to continue on to your goal. There was a track called The Eternal Forest that I came across by Bruneville. Okay, hey, cool. People I haven't heard of. Especially when Zadim is waylaid by the Zapparaj. With all of the sense of urgency behind it, I was actually hearing the album Relic by Gelia Ferlango play in the back of my mind. Especially those tracks The Waking of Ishtar and Wrath of Ishtar as you've got this impending war coming up. And then the war right outside ear. The Battle for Mosque Alamu by an artist uh, who at the time went by the name Heather Alexander. And it's from the album Inshallah, The Music of Lion's Blood, based on the series by Stephen Barnes. Yeah, this, like you said, Jen, it's really interesting to hear your inspirations, because a lot of that was the the sense of this battle and, you know, the, the messengers that has to go out and you know retrieve help before this battle comes. I, it was something that was characterized as a journey for Zadim, but you know, musically, it can be very evocative to think of that in, in just kind of the urgency that goes behind it. I think part of it is because I was listening to this book, yeah, like I do. Yeah, I've got all these pages of notes as I came across all this stuff, but the whole time I'm like, okay, come on, get on with it. You've got stuff to do, man. St- come on. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe a little impatient showing on my part. So with that and all of our differing trains of thought, uh, maybe we should move it on to the existing inspirations and reskins for DCC modules. What you got, Mark? So there's a few that came to mind. We covered a few of these recently, and for various reasons, it, you know, they evoked what Zadim's journey was. But the, the first I thought of was Not in Kansas Anymore by Dieter Zimmerman. We mentioned, I think, that last time in Three Hearts and Three Lines, but this is literally the human parallel of the fish out of water story where they're getting pushed back into the, the wizard summoning circle and they have to cope. They have a, <laughs> they come to them from the future plane, you know, instead of the 12th plane. And, and there's a lot of the learning curve that goes along with adjusting to their new environment. It kind of made me think of that one quite a bit. Um, intrigue at the courts of chaos, because 
you obviously have the planar aspects and the orderly interactions between the different groups and entities. When you're on you know, the plane of law, there's some strictures that you have to abide by when you're in the courts. There's the different entities and how they deal with each other. And, and, and some of that is maybe satirical in a sense that the taken to extremes law is like this, the taken to extremes chaos is like this. And so that made me think a little bit about what Zadim is seeing when he's, he sees the prime plane through his, his own eyes. Oh, um, with all of the different peoples and the different governmental forms. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I could definitely see that. Uh, the last one that, that I came up with besides our feature, I know Doug Kovacs does a version of Sailors on the Starless Sea where he does a reverse sailors. And <laughs> yeah. the players are beastmen. After the cleansing wave of humanity has come you know, through the keep and they are they have to fight their way out uh, in order to you know, reach the surface and escape, you know, now that the keep is now patrolled by humans. And how do you how do you make that a player character? You could start with something like that as an adventure seed and come up with a way of depicting, you know, a Zadim-like entity as uh, as a PC and, and having classes for them, you know, sort of like what Bob was saying when he was uh, talking about things to stat. That was kind of an interesting one that I don't think outside of conventions, it's it doesn't get much attention, but it, Doug does a really fun job with that. It really was fun. I I think I was there for one of the first years he ran that. And yeah, I think the only downside is that aside from a couple of physical aspects, you are all beastmen. So you're all different as opposed to just one fish out of water. But then when you finally do get to the surface, crap, they're scanners. Okay. I gotta say, I thought this was gonna end up mirroring Fate's Fell Hand, the first 10, 15 pages. But as it turns out, the demon in this book had little to no power over the situation. So that kind of, mm, yeah, there went that idea. With the quarry of Ear having been mined for iron to trade, and then they just kept mining and they ended up with this in mountain city, you could make this story with all of its hex crawl facets of exploration a bit darker versus the light-hearted exploration of cultures journey to the center of Aerith. You could actually put a good number of these peoples, or at least these cultures and attitudes, inside there. I, I promise I'm going to stop talking about the summoning circles, but there are some wonderful, <laughs> wonderful details in those. There are a couple of them described in a particular area of Harley Stroh's upcoming Music of the Spheres that I may have playtested seven or eight times, so it's stuck in my brain. The Infernal Crucible of Cesarecon the Mad. I believe it's that fifth level one that's in the back of printings one through three for the big tome of DCC. Cesarecon summoned and forgot to release the guardian of an artifact. And oh yeah. You that's, could That's a good one. You could easily reskin this to make the part of Dr. Maldivius more powerful and perhaps more sinister. Hmm. And and the last one I wanted to slip in there was the visual that I got for Escape of the Sea Queen because Zadim really he just kept repeating he wanted to get home to his wife and eggs. And so You've got the Lamprey Men Nursery. (laughs) Bob makes the scared noise because he's encountered some Lamprey Men. But but they were cute. Lamprey are just horrific to begin with. I mean, (laughs) they are a living DCC monster to begin with, so... And 
Zadim was described as looking like a catfish. So there you go. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What about you, Bob? I thought there was a lot of stuff that you could reskin if you took the city of Sis from the 998th Conclave of Wizards, for example, and reskinned it as the 12th plane. You could swap the wizards out for demons, and <laughs> you yeah, would have a whole new life out of out of that mini setting. Oh man, you could almost keep yeah. it as is for the whole stupid syndicate thing that they had going on in ear. <laughs> well, but the, the syndic weren't really magical or anything of the sort. They were mostly moneylenders and uh, and merchants. Except for Roska. She dabbled. Very, very little. <laughs> <laughs> Let me have my moment. <laughs> because Sis is already such a fantastical setting, changing it over to demons is really not that difficult. I thought that the cavemen of Zapparaj, they easily could have been the cavemen of Frozen in Time or the Tribe of Og or the Gift of Sus and very easily incorporated into things for a fantasy setting. So rather than needing to reskin those, you could just take bits and pieces of this adventure and drop them into those. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then there was Bagardo's Carnival, and I thought that could easily be used as a precursor to the Carnival of the Damned, or as mm-hmm. a way to run Carnival Life after that adventure, because carnivals are a great way to move about. So if you've got a party that started with a Carnival of the Damned funnel, and you know they've, they've gotten that resolution, well, maybe the carnival keeps going, and that is how they initially travel on their adventures, is with the carnival. Oh, yeah, that's that's a really good tie-in. Uh, I like that taking bits and scenes from the book, and the carnival is one of those that deserves some afterlife after you've run it. Well, it's a fun setting, and it's one that, oddly enough, in fantasy, isn't terribly overused. I mean, I think the only other really standout version of a carnival that I find in you know, fantasy literature or films would be in Peter Beagle's The Last Unicorn. So you've got David Beatty, you've got Peter Beagle. that's freaking awesome company for david to be in and it gives you some great stuff to draw on yeah i I could see you keeping the ringleader and a couple of those npcs around for them to have as companions during their travels from city to city but that could be really interesting Mm -hmm. oh man cool (gasps) so many ideas so few saturdays (laughs) to run games (laughs) (laughs) well that's what all the other days of the week are for (laughs) Ah, yes. (laughs) Yeah, and you let me know how that works for you, Mark. (laughs) Oh, no, yes. I'm not one to talk. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on those awesome notes, that will bring us to our DCC feature for the show. This episode, we have Elzamon and the Blood Drinking Box by Mr. Terry Olson. Ooh, he gets a twofer. This one is published by Goodman Games. And was the free RPG Day release for 2014. Seeking the favor of a powerful wizard, the party agrees to steal an artifact from a rival sanctum. The wizard requires, however, that PCs feed the artifact lawful blood to imprison its contents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was waiting. <laughs> 
I really enjoyed this adventure. It's a fun adventure. It's it's a fairly simply put together adventure, so it's easy to run. Thank goodness. <laughs> it is kind of linear because it involves a lot of stairs, but <laughs> well, it's also a free RPG day adventure. Yeah, well, and it has a lot of life to it. Just a little trivial note to point out, uh, Elzamon himself first appeared in the Infernal Crucible of Cezricon the Mad, so this could maybe be a prequel to that fifth level adventure, which both of them are slated, you know, as written, to be within the city of Punjar. Mm-hmm. So that that's, that's a good point. Perhaps this happens first, because a different wizard had summoned him, and the wizard he's serving in this adventure has ordered him to guard an artifact, but, and I quote, was not careful enough in the wording of his commands. <laughs> There's a little bit of shenanigans going on, but... Well, and isn't the wizard something like Ralabast of the Incredibly Multiple Eyes or some Lankmar-ish piece like that? Ralabast of many eyes, that's it. And he's kind of this Lankmar-ish character that hires the party. The other wizard is Necros the Grotesque. <laughs> yeah, it, it, this was a really fun adventure, and it's one of those early DCC games at, at Free RPG Day. I think I ran it at, on Free RPG Day in 2014. It was amazing, the table's response to you know the concepts and ideas of a box that you had to feed blood, and the idea of this closet that was sort of an intermediary, its own agenda, apart from the, the hiring wizard. Things that the players, I think, were, were kind of used to much more. You said this is a linear adventure, but it's it's very DCC and it's in its linearity. You know, you get a lot of these side informations that are evoked just from very simple ways that, the, you know, Terry introduces them. You know, the, the Langmar aspect of Radabast, or you get the kind of grotesqueness of this box that you have to keep alive. And it, and it really, the players at the table respond to that, because I think, I remember at the end of the session I ran, one of the players was like, yeah, I'm totally you know, going to be keeping this box and I want to keep it. <laughs> I'm not going to deliver this thing. This is a cool box. And I, yeah, I'm going to totally go conquer some lawful people to keep feeding it blood. <laughs> so. Oh, man. Just the concept of Elzamon himself was like, you know, this is a no-lose situation for him. Either this is going to happen or this is going to happen. Either he's entertained or he's released. It's all good. So from the party standpoint, they have an adversary that they can't see or really understand or even really defeat. I think it's a good lesson that not everything that you're confronted with needs to be beaten to death. Sometimes the journey is the adventure itself. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way. And Yeah, Terry just has a, a wonderful economy of words for evoking this this really rich setting and you know it's it's got to be like a i don't know counting the pages but it's like a six page adventure it's not really long at all but it did fill a four hour slot right yes i, I mean and and then some i, I well read- and that's because the way the encounters are set up is wonderful i do remember the look on jim delvasto's face at our table when he realized what had to be done to keep the box alive yeah that gave him the willies that, <laughs> that look of horror <laughs> if i recall there were only one or two at the table who were lawful, and they yeah. were pretty put out. <laughs> yeah, Yorn was getting a little loopy from blood loss. Yeah. Uh. 
Well, and it's also worth noting that Elzaman and the Blood Drinking Box is also the subject of the first DCC Terry Olsen fanfic I've ever come across. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's fanfic though, right? Not well, not slash. Yes. Okay. It is not slash fix, so, uh, so Terry can can sleep well. I got nothing. <laughs> That's amazing. It's it's it spawns that creation. I, I have to go check that out now. That's. <laughs> I mean, and it's actually decently written. I, I'm reminded of the fiction that Brendan LaSalle put together to kind of flesh out the hole in the sky. And it was that little bit of fiction at the back of the Goodman Games yeah. uh, Gen Con program for 2015. Boy, that was a little gem hidden back there. <laughs> but again, he's writing for his own material. Well, and it's funny because Terry didn't know that it existed either until I brought it to his attention. And, uh, uh, yeah. He's like, like, wow, that's long. <laughs> like, yes, yes, it is. It's indeed long. Your six-page adventure is 54 pages of fiction. So, uh, I think on that note... Actually, it is worth noting that since we're talking about DCC fiction, yes. Mike Lowe uh -huh. in the oh, DCC right. RPG group has been publishing essentially chapters of his DCC novel in the uh, DCC RPG group. Oh! He's up to like chapter seven, The Chieftain's Burial now. Oh, that's so, cool. And of course, then there's the the wonderful solo Choose Your Own Adventure from Noah Stevens. So there there is a little bit more DCC fiction out there, but come on, Terry Olson fanfic. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Nice wrap on that back around. Let's see what our road crew's up to nowadays. So, hey, Mark, tell us where we are on the 2017 edition of the Gong Farmer's Almanac. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So we are wrapping up editing at this point. Wow. We are in the process of taking all the great content that's been submitted. I think we're over 40 submissions this year at about 90,000 words. Uh, Holy so. cow. So we'll, we'll be, it looks like we'll be in that seven to eight volume range again plan is still to publish uh and distribute for free at gen con this year so that'll wow. be gives a little bit more time for layouts since gen con's coming in the end of august instead of at the very very early part of august like it was last year and so there's a lot of work to do um we're still you know getting volunteers to uh, submit art there's still a window for getting illustrations and art in as we wrap up editing but pretty much the submissions are done at this point and you know, we've got you know, quite a number of uh, folks contributing this year that are new to the the zine and some returning folks from last year. So, really looking forward to getting the the you know the, all the great content out um, in zine format again, and um, a lot of work to do for the team, but very gratifying to see the response and the continued interest um, from the community to support the zine. So, yay! Okay. In other news, M. Nixick is running DCC Funnels from 2 to 6 p.m. every Saturday at Tacoma Games in Tacoma, Washington. Judge K.J. O'Brien has made his kid-friendly Mushroom Kingdom classics available to members of the community. And it really is a nice bit of fun. Come on, you can play you know, Mario and <laughs> and, and we'll provide the link in the show notes. The Appendix N Book Club of New York will be pretty busy in June discussing no less than three Appendix N entries. 
find Judge Jeff Goad for more info or go to Mia's Bakery on June 10th and the 17th. And likewise, Judge Jeff is also running DCC regularly at the Brooklyn Strategist. Maybe moving to every other Sunday at this point versus Saturdays, but find him or drop by the store on June 17th, which you should do anyway, as it is Free RPG Day. Jeff Bernstein continues running DCC RPG at my old friendly local game store, Games Plus, in Mount Prospect, Illinois. You can check with the store for more details. Registration for Gen Con 50 starts in May, and there will be a record number of DCC and related games on the schedule. And I think there's 140 at the latest count. That's including the return of the DCC Open Tournament. Um, uh. If there are still spots, uh, information is on the Goodman Games website. They recently posted uh, some information. It's a new uh, adventure being written for the tournament uh, by a cabal of writers uh, led by Harley Stroh. So it should be a, a lot of fun. On June 7th, Tim DeShane will be running DCC as part of Night of the Gaming Nerds at the Revival Brewing Company in Cranston, Rhode Island. And the event runs from 6 to 10 p.m. Right now, as we release this, North Texas RPG Con is going on. It runs through June 4th. You can look for Judge Chris, a.k.a. Tanglebones, to be running his funnel version of the classic D&D adventure B1, In Search of the Unknown. Bailey Nichols and Noah Marshall are running a DCC tournament Assault on Castle Ravenvania, as well as events run by Craig Stokes, Julian Burnick, and Jeff Goad of the Judges J, Doug Kovacs, Matt Gullett, Edgar Johnson, Ryan Moore... Eric Hoffman, and of course, our very own Mark Bruner. Sanctum Secorum's free RPG Day Game Finder has launched and is available on our site. If you plan on running a game, let us know and we'll get you added to the list. If you are looking for a game to play on June 17th, we hope our list helps. Friend of the show, Troy Tucker, has emerged from his self-imposed exile to unleash a playtest of David Beatty's Dark Trails. Look for him at the Magician's Forge in Northport, Florida on alternating Saturdays. You can check with the store or find Troy on G Plus or Facebook for further information. And he will additionally be joining us at Dungeon Games in Estero, Florida to bring Dark Trails goodness to Free RPG Day at high noon. Yay! So come play DCC RPG with the man who introduced the game to Bob and I, and you will not regret it. Yeah, that is that is really true. <laughs> <laughs> also, time is running out to enter David Beatty's charity raffle, which benefits the Kits and Cats Rescue. At the time of recording, there is now a total of three drawings. There's a grand prize drawing and two others, and the list of swag that is being given out is far too long to even try to mention here. It is amazing. It, you know, the raffle tickets are a dollar a piece. And last year he presented Kits and Cats Rescue with a check for $900. And the ladies involved with the charity just were bawling because Over the people moon. don't help them that way. Yeah. And at this point he's closing in on $1,900. <laughs> So it's going to be fantastic. To donate, you can simply log into PayPal and send whatever you can spare to mysticmousers at gmail.com. And, of course, we will have the link and the hardback custom DCC engraved wooden blank book. That's that's mm. that's ours, right? We're going to win that. Right. I want to win that. <laughs> I want to win that really bad. Um, there's also a link, paypal.me slash mysticmousers. 
and we'll have we'll have the links in our show notes. And we knew David Beatty was a stand up guy and and loves his kitty cats. So we knew him when <laughs> <laughs> before he was the the charity mogul. Oh. Before he was the charity mogul and the mastermind behind Dark Trails. We yes, yes, he's amazing. Want to see your creation in the DCC community's only free monthly e-zine? We would love to see what sort of things you have created based on your appendix and reading. Remember, we have quite a few things on our prize closet to give away in return for our contributions, zines, modules, and even some great Appendix N. Please, please let us give them away. Please. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a box. <laughs> or two. Box. Or two. We'd love to see more contributions to the zine and just get, you know, a, a lot of different authorships in that. I think uh, it's much more fun to put that together on a monthly basis and and see it actually come out in a regular. And it'd be great to feature more voices in that. So Well, and obviously, we're all drawing from different inspirations, even within the same book, you know, as exactly. evidenced here in this show. So. And if you've written something based on a book that we've already covered, send it along anyway. We don't mind at all. It's a great way to be able to share your creation with the community at large. Likewise, if you're running any road crew games or preparing for Free RPG Day, hit us up. Submit your events uh, to us at thehub at sanctum.media. Same website for any submissions. Or find us on G Plus and Twitter. I think that's it. We're not on Facebook. Yeah, we're not on Facebook. And we will never be on Ella. <laughs> okay, so the regular social media sites for us, a little more limited, but you can find us individually without a problem. Yes. Keep an eye out for our future topics, and we can include your material in the show companion, again, no matter which show it's regarding. And our free RPG Day event finder is up and being updated every day. Thank you so much, Bob. Yeah, we had, yes. we had 28 events in three countries last year on Free RPG Day. That's where we maxed out. We are sitting right now at 26 events across four countries, and we still have a good amount of time to go. We're like three weeks out as of this recording, and we haven't heard from a lot of the usual suspects yet, so it should be a really good list this year. So many times in the Google Plus community for DCC, someone will pipe in and say, hey, I've been listening to Spellburn, or I've been listening to Sanctum, and I really want to play the game. I'm thinking about picking up the book. So there's a lot of people that are on the periphery that are looking at hopping into the game, and this year's entry from Goodman Games for Free RPG Day is a quick start rule set. Right. Along with a couple of adventures. Yeah, it's got two adventures to it, and it's got everything you need to run your characters like first or second level. So that's fantastic. You can come in if you've been on the fence, pick up a free rule set and give it a go. And given the you know the the number of venues that participate, you know, it's worth the drive. You know, if you have to, if you don't have a place that regularly runs it, try to plan out that day where you can go to a nearby local city that's doing something and have a fun time. Because it, the judges, uh, you you know, that that run these things are usually just so engaged with you know advocating the the system and, and making the players have a really fun time with it. So fervent. This is our national holiday. Well, and I mean, and some of the stuff coming up for Free RPG Day, you've got Daniel J. Bishop of Purple Duck Games is running in Toronto. You've got James Carpio, the guy who wrote Tales from the Fallen Empire. He's running in Connecticut. Brendan LaSalle is actually going to be in Worcester, Massachusetts. You're ready. Are you ready, some Jen? Are you, are you running on Free RPG Day? We are slated for 12 hours each, three slots oh, a day over yes. at Dungeon Games from noon through midnight. Well, and Mark, you're running at Dragon Lair Comics in Austin, right? 
I am. That means that all of us currently on the Sanctum Secorum are running stuff on Free RPG Day. So I think the challenge needs to be sent out. Hey, Spellburn, we're spotting you one because we share <laughs> Judge Jen with you. Yeah, what about Julian Burnick? Is he going to run something? Let's get the Spellburn crew out there. And hey, Glowburn guys, come on. Let's <laughs> yeah, get, there. Let's get that MCC going. Where are you right. guys at? Right. Okay, so on that note, just go to Free RPG Day Hour. Yes. And we hope we've inspired you. Thanks for listening. Good night. Thanks, everyone. You have been listening to the Sanctum Secorum Podcast. Join us again next time when the Sanctum Secorum opens to study Fred Saberhagen's Changeling Earth. The Sanctum Secorum Podcast has been a production of Sanctum Media. Copyright 2017.